We're in 1 Kings chapter 2. It's our last study in the series on the life of David. 60 messages covering the life of this great saint, the man after God's own heart. 1 Kings chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, really verses 1 through 11. The topic we find there is this. From his deathbed, King David gives advice to his son and successor, Solomon, the title of our message, Famous Lasting Words. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, your word, it can be so powerful in our lives if we would just let it in. If we'll come before you prayerfully and really humbly in our hearts and tell you ahead of time, Lord, that we're going to submit to whatever we learn from your word by your Holy Spirit. That's our attitude, Lord, our pre-attitude. And then as we work through these texts, Lord, I pray that we would see how they, though written about David and in his kingdom in that era, Lord, a thousand years B.C., how they apply to us right now, right where we're at in a church in Hanford, California. That we would marvel at that, Lord. But marvel more that you are speaking directly to us, the God of the universe who created all things loves us and is talking to us. I pray that we would set aside all the sin and the things that weigh us down, Lord, and just attend to your voice. That we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. I thought this was funny. It's from a list called the Top Ten Criticisms of Churches. The writers first state a criticism and then they give their suggested solution. In the interest of time, I'm only going to mention three of them. Criticism number one, nobody noticed when I was gone for three weeks. The suggested solution, from now on, each member of the congregation will be required to have placed on their ankle a tracking device so that we will know where they are at all times, including when they are at the lake, at the golf course, hunting, etc., I could add to that Disneyland. Also, each member will be required to bring a doctor's note stating that the member was actually sick and had an excuse for being out of church. The church will also start to use the phone tree system to give everyone a wake-up call on Sunday mornings so that they can get to church on time. Criticism number two, I don't know everybody anymore. Suggested solution, from now on each member of the congregation will be required to memorize the names and faces of each member of the congregation, including each new member that joins. Also, each member will be required to wear a photo ID. (laughs) Criticism number three, the worship team doesn't sing my kind of music. Hold your response there. The suggested solution, from now on there will be no more worship team or congregational singing, but each seat in the sanctuary will be equipped with an iPod and headphones so you can listen to your favorite type of Christian music during the worship service. If you're saying yes, then you're missing the point. But anyway, (laughs) these were posted by a deacon board that was obviously frustrated by criticisms of their leadership. You've heard of the game Angry Birds. This is Angry Board. Uh, They're just out there. Now, their sarcastic approach is probably not helpful in the long run, but it does kind of highlight for us the fact that we might not always be working together in the church to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the biblical illustrations of the church is that we are God's building, we are God's temple on the earth. 
The apostles and prophets of the first century laid the foundation and we come along as living stones and continue to build generation after generation. In the New Testament letters to various churches, we discover the Lord's plans for our building. The Bible says that it is his church and he's given us plans for it in the New Testament. We also discover there that God, the Holy Spirit, makes available to us every necessary spiritual provision with which to build. So we would say we have all the plans and every provision for building God's spiritual temple. All we would need then is to have the right spiritual heart as we approach the work. We can identify a few components of that right heart as we look at the last words of David to his son and successor Solomon. Just like the Lord has done for us, David had provided all the plans and every provision for the building of God's literal temple on earth in Jerusalem. All Solomon needed was to have the right heart as he approached the work that awaited him. He gets an understanding of that right heart from David's deathbed counsel. The king tells the future king to live Godward with devotion and to look manward with discernment. David's advice will serve us well if we heed it with regard to building God's spiritual temple, the church on the earth. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you build the church by living Godward with devotion. And number two, you build the church by looking manward with discernment. Let's take a look Godward first and talk about our devotion or at least see what David says about it. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul said that the foundation of the building, the church, was laid once and for all. He said specifically, and this is from Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 20, he said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so one way to illustrate this amazing entity called the church is to say it's like a living spiritual building. In the first century, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. They gave the plan for it. It's built on the truth about Jesus Christ. And then each of us, as we filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the spirit, come together uh, the entire structure, as it were, becomes filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are on earth, both individually and corporately, the temple of the Spirit. Then regarding the day-to-day work of building the church, Paul said, and this is Ephesians 4:11 and 12, Jesus gave some to be apostles and prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to edify the body of Christ. Now, we would say that the church exists to exalt Jesus Christ. Anybody ever ask you, what is the purpose of the church? By the way, if you put that in like a search or look in a book or something, you'll get all kinds of answers. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to exalt Jesus Christ. It is his church. He is building it. And the overall overriding purpose is that he would be glorified, lifted up and exalted. Everything else is always going to be subordinate to that. And so we're to exalt Jesus Christ and we accomplish that, the writer here says, by evangelizing non-believers and then equipping believers to do the work of the ministry. And so the church exists to exalt the Lord and that happens as we 
bring unbelievers to Christ and as believers are built up to go out and do the work of the ministry. Within that general framework, there's going to be room for a lot of variation. I'm not one of those people who subscribes to the idea that there should only be one physical church in every town. You know, some people get really freaked out. Well, how come there's so many churches? There's a lot of different types of people, aren't there? And some of us, we just have a different emphasis in our life. We're not wrong. We just get ministered to in a different way. Some people like to be really super casual in their worship. They don't mind coming to a church where the pastor looks kind of like a hobo. Uh, you know, they think other people come here to Calvary and they think you're disrespecting the word of God. You've got some kind of crazy shirt on and jeans. My goodness, you can't wear jeans in church. And and I know this, you know, people say to us that, you know, they they call us or they come and they say, hey, w- you know, uh, what can I wear to church? I'm dressed like this. You know, what, what should I wear to church? I said, man, you're dressed better than I am right now. You know, and so, and so we're kind of a come as you are church. And you know that. I mean, and I, I personally... I guess I wouldn't mind getting all dressed up for church if I, you know, had to, uh, but I don't have to. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with getting all dressed up for church. There's nothing wrong with getting dressed down for church. It's just a kind of a silly illustration. But yeah, I mean, some people, they want it. They just feel more casual. They're more connected to God that way. Other people, quite honestly, they don't feel a connection to God unless they're wearing a tie. I have nothing to say about that. And so there's always going to be different churches, as long as they're good churches, as long as they're exalting Christ, teaching the word, doctrinally, you know, orthodox and all of that. We don't have a problem with that. In each of those churches that God has definitely raised up, the builders, all the believers need to have the right heart in his charge to his son. David gives us some insight about having a heart First of all, devoted to the Lord in our building for him. So verse one, now the days of David drew near that he should die and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. The words be strong can have a variety of meanings, including continue or prevail or withstand. It sounds like David is telling Solomon that he needs to persevere over time serving the Lord. And as he does, he will prove himself or he will fulfill God's desire and design for him. It doesn't take anything away from our dependence upon the Lord to realize that as his servants, we are called upon to be faithful over time. Faithfulness is one thing that is required of us. In the New Testament, we read faithfulness is is required of a steward, a servant of God, who has the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he be found faithful. And I like that because all of us can be faithful. We can't all do miracles. We can't all be teachers. We can't all be missionaries. We're not all called to speak in tongues or do some of the things, you know, that are all over the map. But All of us can be faithful, and as we are faithful, we prove out God's plan for our lives. And then in verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now this word charge means to safeguard and to watch as if you were a sentry on duty. If you want to be faithful throughout your lifetime and prove yourself, then watch and guard over the two things that David mentioned. He says God's ways 
and God's word. What do we mean by God's ways? Well, there's a really beautiful verse in the Psalms, one of my favorite verses. It's Psalm 103, verse 7, and it reads like this. It's talking about God, and it says, He made known His ways to Moses and His acts to the sons of Israel. We might say His works. And so when, when we're looking at Moses and the children of Israel, we could look at that and say, Moses knew the ways of God. He understood the nature and the character of God. He had a deep, intimate relationship with God. Now, the Israelites knew God as well, but they focused more on his works. They knew him through his deeds and his miracles, and they didn't really know him as deeply as Moses. And the text doesn't say that it was God's fault. Uh, It was on them to draw closer to God, but they were content with just knowing the works of God. And so it prompts us to ask, am I looking for God's ways or just his works? Let's say I'm struggling in a trial or I'm stuck in some suffering. Am I wanting deliverance and healing? Well, the answer to that is yes. But in conjunction with that, am I willing to wait upon the Lord and learn something about his ways that I could not know otherwise. The trials of Job related in his book are a good example of this. Job and his three friends all thought that they knew God. But as Job suffered and as his situation continued and it worsened, their dialogue revealed that they knew something about God's works, but they didn't really know God's ways. Finally, Job started to understand God's ways. At one point, he exclaimed, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, Job, you know, as he's arguing with his friends about, you know, did he sin and why is God cursing him and all of these things where they're just concentrating on the works of God and they're acting like, you know, Job must have done something wrong. Job has this aha moment, this breakthrough moment where he says, I'm actually experiencing intimacy with God. I'm learning something of the ways of God. I'm learning that my God is sufficient for me no matter what's going on in my life. I don't have to be blessed with incredible wealth. I don't have to have, you know, all these other prosperous things around me to know that I'm being blessed. In the culture of Job and in the culture of Israel and in the culture of our world sometimes today, we look at people and we think, man, if if they have health and wealth and prosperity, God is blessing them. They're doing everything good and I wish I was them. And then some suffering or some trial comes into your life and there's a human tendency to think God is angry with me. God is upset with me. And what God showed once for all with Job is that, no, I just want to get intimate with you. I want to show you that if you don't have any wealth, if you don't really have your health, if there's no prosperity in your life, if you're reduced to sitting on an ash heap and all your possession is a borrowed potsherd by which you scrape painful boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you're learning something that the average person will never know and that is how great I am. And Job would go on, he would say, he brought me through this trial and he brought me forth as pure gold. And so that's the thing that uh, we're getting at here when we talk about the ways of God. You're also to stand guard over God's word. What's mentioned here are statutes, commandments, judgments, uh, and testimonies. 
Now, you could parse what all of those mean in particular, but I think what David is getting at is that he's telling Solomon, he goes, whatever you happen to need, if you need a testimony, if you need a judgment, if you need a commandment, if you need a statute, anything you think you're going to need, you're going to find it in the scriptures. It's all inclusive. There's no other source that you need for life and for godliness. The companion exhortation for us in the New Testament would be 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So again, uh, the idea is that you have the scripture and whatever it is you need to live a godly life and to understand the ways of the Lord, you've got it. You don't really need to look anywhere else. I don't know about you, but I find it comforting that everything I need for living the Christian life with godliness can be discovered for me in one place and that I'm not in the dark. I don't have to worry about have I read the latest book or been part of the, you know, the big program that's happening or if I'm missing something because God has laid it all out for me and if I will patiently search for it and seek him out, he will reveal whatever it is that I need. Now, I'm not saying other resources are bad or you can never read books or anything like that, but it's, we want to keep things into perspective. We go into it thinking, this is what I need for life and godliness. If I need advice on my marriage, if I need advice in my business, if I need advice in any area that affects living, God's already given me more than I need. Uh, verse 4. That the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spake concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. What I get out of this verse is where it says that God wants to fulfill his word to his servants. All he needs from us is that we would take heed to our way and walk before him in truth with all of our heart and Soul. And so, in these opening four verses, we're learning that our first look must be Godward always. And, and we already know that, but it's a great reminder. When we're looking to the Lord first, we're going to build according to His plans, depending on His spiritual provision. Or maybe to put it this way, to remember that since we are builders in an ongoing work that the Lord started and he has given us plans and provision, that's where we should seek uh, our wisdom. Now, as we go on in verses 5 through 12, we're going to see that you build the church by looking manward with discernment. This all sounded so glorious, this building of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm sure Solomon was extremely excited. And it was glorious. But there were going to be some people who would not be on board and who could hinder the work. The church on the earth, God's spiritual temple... It is glorious. I love God's church. I love this church, this particular church, but I love the idea of the church. I know there's something called the universal church, not the one online that gives you, you know, uh, ordination. Do you know that you can get ordained online? Anyway, uh, but there is something in the literature that we would call the universal church, and that just means that every person who's been born again from the day of Pentecost forward till the rapture of the church, belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. We're all part of that gigantic building. But in any community, there are also local expressions of the church. And when believers gather, we are the church. And I love the church. There's no such thing in the New Testament as an, a, a believer who's not connected to a local church or a local fellowship. 
All of the analogies, the building, the body, uh, they all require that a Christian be connected to other Christians in a recognized body of believers. Paul, when he, he talks about the building, you can see this. If you're a building block and you're out somewhere, there's a hole in the building. And you're not really doing anybody any good as a block. Maybe a frog can live in you or something like that as a frog house or something. But you're not part of the building. You think you are because you're a Christian, but you need to be a part of some building. You're part of a universal building, but not a local building. The body of believers is even better as an illustration. Maybe you're the finger. And, and so now there's a body that, that only has nine fingers. And you're just a finger crawling around thinking that you're doing a work for God, but you're really not. And so the, the believer is always connected to other believers. And I get really upset about two things. Number one, criticisms of the church or a church that are unfounded and mean-spirited. Uh, and the uh, other thing escapes me right now, but it'll come back to me in just a minute. <laughs> oh, I know what it is. It's... Yes, I knew. If I know, I always have to. God just wants me to embarrass myself, and then He tells me what it is. Uh, And it's it's when people just go out and they start churches. Do people still say "willy nilly" anymore? Is that an expression? How many of you recognize the expression "willy nilly"? All right. It's when people just go out and they think, "Oh, I'm just going to start a church." Do you have any leading? No. Is there any people there that want a church? No. Are there good churches in that area? Sure. What's the deal? I just want to start a church. I think I can start a church that's just, you know, this and this. And, and it bothers me if it's not really led by the Lord. Now, I'm not the, I'm not the spirit-led police. You know, I don't, I'm not the one who knows what's led and what's not in everybody's life. But there are times when people just do things that are not led by the Spirit. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So I love the church. However, just like in Solomon's time, there are always some people who are not on board. And that can include you and I sometimes. We can think of this in terms of an us versus them, those people who are not on board. But it's really more of an attitude that almost any of us can develop if we're not careful. And so what we're going to learn from David's lasting words is that we can identify at least three types of people and three types of attitudes. First, there was Joab. He represents the self-serving person and attitude, verse 5. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruai, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and he put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Joab killed the two commanders of the armies of Israel so that he could remain the commander of the army. He did it with deceit and brutality in order to further or at least secure his own self-interest. And so from Joab we learn that there is no place for self-serving, for self-seeking, for self-interest when you're building in the temple of God, in the church of God. It's apparent that most church difficulties result from someone being selfish, from them being self-willed and wanting their own way. They may disguise what they are doing in spiritual lingo, but at the heart of it you will find self. Self isn't always expressed negatively. Oftentimes it can be expressed by people who simply have their own agenda in a church. And so instead of building together with the other members, they are building something for themselves. 
They may establish something, some ministry they think is necessary. Maybe it is, or maybe it just siphons the strength of the church and is not what the Lord has raised up. One of the things that I find sad about uh, improper church splits, and by that I mean there's no doctrinal issue and you know, it, it's really just a matter of selfishness, is that instead of having a hundred people whose resources can, you know, accomplish something, you split that group. It's never split in half because you always lose some people who just get disgusted with it. And you have two smaller groups that don't have the resources to do very much. Uh, and, and it just hinders the work of the Lord. And so it's a very serious kind of a thing. Self is overcome by seeking the Lord and in the building of his church, it's by submitting to a godly leadership that he has raised up. Just as simple as that. Now let's skip talking about Barzillai in verse 7 for a moment. Let's look at Shimei. Verse 8, And you see you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, Benjamin from Bahrum, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanam. He came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Shimei represents a subversive person or attitude. We might use the word divisive. He's the person who refuses to recognize God's delegated authority in leaders that have been raised up. He rallies others against them, all in the name of what is best for everyone, when in reality he's just refusing to submit. It's too bad that God's church is known so much in the world for division and infighting. We are to maintain, the Bible says, the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. We start off, when you get saved, you start off connected to other believers, united with them in the spirit of unity, and it's not the Lord who breaks that, it's you and I who do that. There's no place for subversive behavior that undermines the building. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. Back to verse 7 and this gentleman Barzillai. Show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Barzillai and his sons represent the supportive person, the supportive attitude. He recognized that David was the man God had raised up to be king. And when David needed it, Barzillai supported him at great sacrifice, at great risk, at great cost to himself. Most of the believers in God's temple are supporters. They are there to build up. They do it by giving their money, by giving of their time, by giving of their gifts and talents to do the work. And what's interesting, they deserve, like uh, David told Solomon, they deserve to eat at God's table. They deserve to be fed and nourished, to be built up in order to do the work of the ministry. You remember that deacon board I quoted in the introduction and their sarcasm. I don't know the whole story there, and I don't know exactly who they are, but as an illustration, it seems like they allowed the selfishness and the subversiveness of a few in their midst to influence their thinking. And so they looked out at their church, and they saw some people who were subverting things and who were unsubmissive and selfish, causing problems of various kinds. And they decided to come up with this you know, approach of... of showing how ridiculous these people were, and they came up with this sarcastic approach. Instead of feeding the supporters, they took a shot 
at those who weren't supportive. And the problem is when you do that, when that creeps into the general attitude of the church, when the pastor starts getting a little angry and the elders and deacons and the servants, they start getting a little bummed out at people who act like that, then other people who are supporters, they often take the hit and they start feeling condemned. And instead of coming to church and being edified and being built up in your most holy faith so that you can go out and face a cruel world, a terrible world that's trying to tear you down, you end up getting torn down more in church. You feel like a loser. All the time, the subversive person and the selfish person, they're not really getting it. If you really think somebody's subversive and selfish, you just go talk to them personally. Always bothered me, and maybe... You who are teachers, you know, maybe this bothers you too, or maybe you can tell me why, but it always bothered me if there was one or two people who were ruining it for a a classroom, let's say, or a, a group of kids or a certain group, that there would be this general exhortation about how everybody is blowing it. You're all doing this and you're all doing that, and if you don't stop, blah, blah, blah. Why not just go to that person or those people and say, if you don't get it together, you're out of here. And so that's the idea. So if we get into a situation in the church where there are people that need to be dealt with, then deal with them and keep the vision that, hey, most of God's people are coming to be built up because out in the world they're getting hammered, they're getting beat up. They might be the only Christian at work. They might be the only Christian at home. They want to share their faith. They want to be filled with the Spirit to overflowing. And the place that they get that is in the church of Jesus Christ as they're being fed the Word of God. Now, there's issues that the church can talk about, financial needs and struggles and programs and all of that. But the end result of it ought to be that we exalt the Lord, that we glorify the Lord, that we lift up the Lord. And if you leave with anything, it would be just a conviction from the Lord that is always sweet and powerful saying, man, I want to be a better Christian. And I want to be a better Christian because I see Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I see His great love for me. And I, He deserves nothing less. And so that's kind of... I, David's really insightful here. He's telling Solomon, hey, you're going to have... You've got Joab to deal with. You've got Shimei to deal with. And they're just representative of people like that. He said, but you also have Barzillai and his sons. And keep all of that into perspective. Now David's life closes out with these last precious words, verse 10 and 11. So David rested with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years for a total of 40 years. At every stage of his life, David was one misstep away from death. As a young boy shepherding the sheep, he was confronted in the wilderness by lions and bears. As a teenager, he faced off against the Philistine giant Goliath. As a musician in King Saul's court, he had to dodge spears being thrown at him by a demented king. For over a decade, Saul sent murderers after David or he sought to kill him himself. All that time, Israel's enemies would have been happy to kill David. After he became king, David had to survive a coup attempt by one of his own sons. We would say that death stalked David his entire life. Death stalks us too, and it does for our entire life. You and I have no real assurance beyond right now. Any one of us could pass into eternity today. And... and, Hey, I'm not morbid. I don't think about that too often. But it's true. 
Nobody has a lease on life. You and I don't know God's plan for our life. But I do know God's plan. And so I want to be about the Lord's business. I want to build and I want to do it with devotion, Godward, and with discernment, manward, so that something beautiful exists, something that ministers to people and fills them with hope and joy and the power of living the Christian life. And I know that's what you want as well, or you wouldn't be here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these things. They are precious, Lord. It's always amazing to me to see how things that you said to and through your servants uh, 3,000 years ago as it is today, Lord, are just as applicable today uh, and, and that really are speaking to us. David could be here today speaking from his deathbed to us. He'd only have to change a few terms, Lord, uh, but it's all the same. Even though we are vastly different than the children of Israel and the kingdom of Israel on the earth, we're the spiritual entity, the church. Still, Lord, it, it comes through. And I pray that if anything today, Lord, through the worship and by your word and by everything that was said, that your supporters have been lifted up and built up in their most holy faith. So that every one of us, Lord, that is seeking to follow you has found something about your love today to encourage us and strengthen us so that when we go back into the world that you have given us to uh, conquer, Lord, that we would feel this pulsing of your spirit in our lives. And Lord, if we find ever a selfish or subversive spirit in our own hearts, Lord, that we would kill it, that we would put it to death and rather look beyond ourselves and selfishness to you and prove ourselves faithful day by day until you come for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.